Good morning. Open your Bibles with me, if you have one with you, to Matthew 11. We'll be starting at the beginning of the chapter and folding uh, this chapter all together into those final verses. So we have some work to do, and uh, we'll get going. We're thinking today about why Jesus matters. Why does he matter today? He addresses and exposes our misplaced expectations, and he gives us something better. He exposes our misplaced expectations, and he gives us something better. I I think of when Christina and I got married, we had expectations of one another. I thought she was uh, a certain person. I had experience with her for, you know, a couple of years in college, a lot of fun that we had together, this, this sweet, wonderful person that I loved. And then we got married, and we started doing like whole days together in the same place, the same apartment. And there, there's ways that, you know, you, you do things in the kitchen and, and the dishes somehow stay, stay out or, or, you know, and that could be my fault. And then, you know, the towel is out on the floor in the bathroom. And, and there's these expectations of the way life should be together in the home. And we, we had never even really thought about them before. But all of a sudden, this person who I thought was amazing sometimes drove me crazy and vice versa, no doubt, right? This, I'm not sure if this is the person that I want her to be. That might be in my mind. That might be in her mind, certainly. And if we carried that out any further, it's a recipe for relational disaster. What happens if we tell somebody who they need to be? That's, that's abusive. Some people have lived through that. That doesn't work. And this happened with Jesus. Jesus came to a people who had hopes and expectations. They were so tired, so longing for a king and a kingdom They were longing for their story to turn from from gloom to joy, from powerlessness to being empowered in the world. And Jesus comes, and they, they have all of these expectations of what he will be, and he isn't quite exactly the way they want him to be. And so they want him to be who they might tell him to be. At one point, you'll remember in Luke's account in Luke 4, the crowds, the crowds seize him to make him king, and he eludes them, doesn't he? They want him to be something that he didn't come to be, not king in the way they wanted him to be king. And so there's this process. It can go in our, in our relationships with expectations, and then there's a letdown. You're not exactly what I thought you were. And the question is, what do we do at that point of letdown? I've had friends who look to Jesus And they've been let down because there's something in their life could have been a temptation or a sin that the Lord never took away from them. And they prayed and they prayed and never went away. And they felt so let down. They felt like they couldn't keep following him. There was a a situation in their family or in their life that never changed. Situations in their churches that didn't change or that were just so hurtful. And it's like, Jesus, are you who I thought you were? There's another step that he invites us to, to learn who he is. Even as you get to do for those who are blessed with marriage, for 
for any of us in any stage of life when we're let down, we have an opportunity then to learn what is actually before us and perhaps even to adore with new eyes. But we're going to see in this passage people who want Jesus to be something other than he is. And this could be for a range of reasons. First of all, there's, there's folks who want good things. You're going to see John the baptizer and his disciples. They want good things. They're hurting. They're longing for the Lord to take away the injustice that they're experiencing. There's people who, in their folly, though, <laughs> they just want the wrong things. They want power. They, they want access. They want... Uh, someone who will agree with them, a yes man. And perhaps the things they want are a bit foolish. And, and then you're going to see people that are just fallen and rebellious, and they're going to try to tell Jesus to be who they want him to be, and when he doesn't, they actively oppose him. We see the Pharisees and the scribes earlier have already been saying that he is in league with Satan, <laughs> saying those horrible things about them, about him, and Jesus alludes to them, and others who just don't want to change. They might want Jesus to benefit them with miracles, but they don't want anything to do with repentance. We can be let down when Jesus isn't who we expect him to be, but Jesus matters today because he gives us something better than what we expect. He gives us himself. I hope you'd find that to be good news today. Let's, let's pray, and then we'll dig into the passage. Father, thank you that Jesus came not to be who we want him to be, but to be the great I am, God with us. Help us to see him now. Lord, for those of us who maybe have resisted taking hold of him and allowing him to take hold of us, I pray that you'd open our hearts to see him and to savor who he is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in verse one, Jesus has just finished his uh, instruction to his 12 disciples. He's sending them out on a dangerous mission. And he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And during this time, some disciples of John the baptizer come to Jesus. I call him John the baptizer. Tr traditionally, it's rendered John the Baptist, but sometimes that's confusing for modern day people because as I've reminded you at least once before, John wasn't a Baptist and Jesus wasn't a Presbyterian. Uh, he was a person who baptized people. So I, I call him John the Baptizer, just to, to clarify that. And John heard in, pres in prison about the deeds of the Christ. And he sent word by his disciples and said to, to Jesus through these disciples, remember, he's imprisoned. Herod Antipas has imprisoned him. And he asks, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are, are you really it? Think about John's story. John comes on the scene in chapter 3, and he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He's saying, turn to God, repent. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's at hand. And then he gets to see the king right in front of him. John 1 records that he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sees him. His whole ministry was preparing the way for this one, for the Lord to come to his people. And he sees him, he baptizes him. And now Jesus is, is doing wondrous works, but he's in prison. 
Now, John was anticipating someone who would come after him who would bring this fiery baptism, someone who would baptize not with water like John, but someone who would baptize with the spirit and with fire. He would bring a revival, change in the land and in the world. But he's not seeing that. He's off in, in prison. He sees the powers that be unchanged. And, and so he's wondering, was I wrong? <laughs> Did I get this all wrong? Should we be looking for someone else? Jesus then responds, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. He, he, he goes through texts in Isaiah. Isaiah 29. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers cleansed. Deaf hearing. Isaiah 26. The dead are raised up. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The poor have good news preached to them. What you've been hoping for is here. <laughs> it's happening. And if you've been reading Matthew to this point, Matthew has made it very clear that these things indeed have happened. Jesus has caused the lame to walk. He's caused the, the, the blind to receive their sight, the lepers to be cleansed, the deaf to hear, even a little girl to arise from death. Jesus has done all these things. It's here, but he can't see them. Sometimes this can happen to us too today. The Lord can be at work doing wondrous things, but we don't see it. We just see with tunnel vision the pain that's in our life. We see the, the, the tunnel vision of the news, which disproportionately shares bad news. Those of you who have taken journalism classes, you know this is how that works. You're not getting a proportionate view of the world when you sit in front of your TV and let it tell you what the world is like. The Lord is at work. His gospel's going forward. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me, Jesus says. He's inviting John and his disciples to imagine maybe there's good going on in the world that you can't see. Consider it. <laughs> Consider what I am doing. If, if you struggle with something the Lord hasn't taken away from you, John wasn't taken out of prison. You're struggling with a disease. You're struggling with a relationship with a child, with a relative, with, with a workplace situation, and the Lord doesn't take it away. And it causes you to question, is Jesus really who he says he is? Maybe that can happen to you. I invite you to go back to what he has done. Not only has he done all these things, not only has he brought healing, raised the dead, he himself died for us. And he rose for us. He proved his love for us. That while we were still sinners, he, he would give his life. And, and he proves that God would withhold nothing from us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. His love is strong for you. His love was strong for John. And so, if you're faltering in faith... If you have a misplaced expectation that the Lord will necessarily take away all suffering right now, know that he will one day, but for now he loves you. He's with you. He gives you himself.
Secondly, Jesus will address the crowds. So he turns from the disciples and uh, he speaks to crowds. In verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What would you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What would you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Jesus is, is, is addressing some of the, the things that the crowd probably expected from John, this prophet who came before Jesus preparing the way of the Lord. They wanted a reed that blew about in the wind. They wanted this uh, elsewhere is, is a picture of a yes man, a person who agrees with you. And then when the tide changes, agrees with someone else. Someone who will be what you want them to be. And John wasn't that. That's why he's in prison, by the way. Because he called out Herod Antipas for his immorality. And he wouldn't back down. So now he's, he's waiting in prison because of that. Jesus is going to be no different. He will stand on the truth. The crowds want a yes man. They won't get it. They want a person wearing soft clothing. Uh, Jesus comments they're found in, in king's places. Most likely, this is referring to a person who would be a cosmopolitan person, a wealthy person who has access to, to finery, to nice clothes. Do you want access to power? Do you want access to some sort of celebrity? <laughs> John's not going to give you that. And nor is Jesus. If, if these are sorts of things that, that can get into our hearts at times, we want a Jesus who agrees with us. <laughs> we want a Jesus who gives us some sort of status or access to power. He will confound us <laughs> because those are not the things he came to give. He's the way, the truth, and the life. I hope you could see that as good and not miss out on what he truly came to bring us. And this is where he goes on. Uh, Matthew goes on to share Jesus' words about John. John's name is mentioned seven times in this chapter. And on first blush, you might think that the first 18 or so verses are all about John. But even where they're mentioning John and his name, the point is not to be all about John, but it's pointing to Christ and his greatness. He speaks about John in this way. I tell you, if you went to see a prophet, you got it. And more than that, this is he of whom it's written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Isaiah 40. And Jesus goes on, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the baptizer, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John comes proclaiming the Lord is coming, but he's not going to get to experience the kingdom of heaven coming in its fullness. He's going to die. His role will be fulfilled. And the one who comes after him looking to Jesus, the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he. John experienced the violence that the kingdom of heaven suffered. He's been taken by force with Herod Antipas into prison. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Now we're in a new era, in a new moment. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. It, what Jesus is saying here, he's alluding to a prophecy at the very end of your Older Testament in Malachi 4. Malachi, God's prophet, 
says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and you will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. Elijah will come. Elijah was the great paradigm of a prophet in the Old Testament. Read about him in 1 Kings. And he is coming again in some fashion, the people hoped. And now we're hearing that this is who John the baptizer came to be. We hear about this in Luke chapter 1 when Gabriel prophesied to Zechariah, John's dad, whose wife Elizabeth was barren, that he would have a son named John and that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers as well. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi 4. He's God's prophet who would prepare the way for, for who? For the Lord. So the point of all this talk about John is not to talk about John. It's to say, who is here in front of you, crowd? You want a man in soft clothing? You want a, a, a reed that will bend to whatever you say? Do you not want God? <laughs> Do you have a hunger for him? And this is something I would just invite you to in, in our momentary uh, lives and the way we live moment by moment with blinders. We can lose sight of the greatness that's on offer to us. We want small things, but the Lord is offering himself. God himself giving himself to us. Thirdly, Jesus turns not just to the crowd, but to the whole generation. To what shall I compare this generation? This first century generation that he's speaking to. He says it's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. He's saying, we can't win with you people. John came either eating or drinking. And they say he's a, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> he's darned if he does. He's darned if he doesn't. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The Lord is the true wisdom of God. <laughs> And if you want the Lord to be what you want him to be exactly when you want him to be it, and you're inevitably going to be dissatisfied with whatever he gives you, that's a way of being he's addressing here. He didn't come to give you what you want when you want it. He came to be himself for your salvation. Fourthly, he addresses the unrepentant cities in verses 20 to 24. He denounced the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't, what? They didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are, these are towns around Galilee. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You can imagine these towns, they saw Jesus' miracles, the wonders that he did. But they didn't want him. They just wanted health. <laughs> they wanted a miracle. They wanted a trick. But Jesus came to offer something so much more that he came to offer himself and to invite them to follow him, 
called them after himself, to have them turn from their ways to, to God. And, and this is the thing about Christianity. It's, it's not just something that offers you something nice to add on to your life. It's not just God doing a trick for you. <laughs> it's God coming and blowing up your life and making it into something better. Tim Keller, a pastor, he, he wrote recently, Christianity isn't something you add. It's an explosion that changes everything you had. The Lord Jesus didn't come to just give you something nice. He came to reorient your entire life to himself to cause you to repent and turn to him and give you something better than you thought you even wanted. Fifthly then, we go on to the expectations of the wise and of babies and we finally come to our reading today. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. There's a, a, a pagan writer in the second century who really didn't like Christians. Uh, he reads a lot like new atheists, if you ever come across uh, Richard Dawkins or Chris Hitchens or those kinds of folks. He reads a lot like them. He's, he's looking down upon the Christians. And this is what he says about them. These are the rules laid down by them. He's, again, Celsus speaking of Christians. He says, Christians say, let no one come to us who has been instructed or who is wise or prudent. For such qualifications are deemed evil by us. But if there be an, any ignorant or unintelligent or uninstructed or foolish persons, let them come with confidence. By which words, acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only the silly and the mean and the stupid with women and children. Pleasant fellow, that Celsus. But this is how he viewed Christians. They're stupid, and they can only attract stupid people. The first thing that I would want to say to Celsus is, oh, Celsus. <laughs> oh, my. You, if, if, you, if you just take a moment and consider Paul, who had the Greek poets memorized and ready to quote, along with the entire Old Testament, or if you consider Origen, who is interacting with Celsus, he's the only reason that we have Celsus's words today, who composed what's called the Hexapla, which had the Old Testament written in several versions of Greek and Hebrew. And uh, you, you consider Francis Bacon, a Christian who originated what we call the modern scientific method, Bach, modern-day mathematician John Lennox at Cambridge. You know, th there are a handful of smart Christians. <laughs> but then again, he does have a point. He does have a point. Because you know what? Christianity is not exclusively for folks that are mathematicians at Cambridge. It's not exclusively for Roman orators like Celsus, who are on top of the world. It's not for those with degrees. It's for the poor in spirit. It's for the humble and the lowly. It's for the babes who open up their mouths wide and say, Lord, fill us. We need you. 
So he has a point. And Jesus says, I'm thankful, Father, that you would reveal these things, not to the wise, but to the children, the little babes. This was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. Those words bother some of us, particularly those with church backgrounds, because we've probably been in a Sunday school or a college group at some point where we've had a debate about whether or not God chooses us or whether we choose God. And, and so Jesus says that the only ones who can come to the Father, no one, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so we'll come to that and say, aha, And the other person will say, but then it says, come. And we'll very conveniently ignore the previous verse. Yogi Berra would help us again. When you come to a fork in the road, you take it. <laughs> you would never come to the Lord apart from his grace. You wouldn't. You have to, you have to realize that. I would never. It's only by his gracious will that I would ever come to him. And yet, I had to come. Jesus says, come. So come. If you spend your life philosophizing about this, you'll never come. So come. This wasn't inspired to win a debate in a Sunday school. It was inspired to encourage the weak those who would be looked down upon by those who are the up-and-ups, who would think we never have a chance to come to God. God wouldn't want anything to do with us. Jesus says, oh, yeah, he does. He wants you. He doesn't care about your status. He doesn't care about your wisdom or your degrees. He cares about you. So come to me. You're tired, you weary, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest you may have expected any number of things, but Jesus comes to give you something even better, the rest you've always longed for. I think about what, what I go to for rest, and it usually gives me a high triglyceride count, higher sodium, higher blood pressure, you know. But Jesus is offering something better. For, for those of us who are more disciplined, you know, we go to the gym, and we know that that gives us better rest. It really does. It's good to stay active in your body. But these things have limits, don't they? There's a point at which your body can't stand the gym. There's a point at which food loses its taste. And then where is your rest? Jesus is offering you something that endures. A rest that begins now. And what kind of a rest is it? He says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Well, that doesn't sound like rest, a yoke. He's offering help. Uh, R.T. France wrote of this passage, he's offering those who are finding their loads too hard to carry a new yoke, which far from adding to their oppression will ease the burden and paradoxically will bring not further toil but rest. Walking in the Lord's ways, repenting and turning to God is restful. Recovering our purpose as human beings gives us rest. In, in the beginning, 
God created humankind. He created Adam. He formed him of dust from the ground and he, he placed him in the garden to work and to keep it. That word for to place him is, is, is a, it's a, it's a form of a Hebrew verb that it, it, he caused him to rest there. So the word, the verb literally is to rest. He caused Adam to rest in the garden, to work it and to keep it. So in the beginning, the rest of humankind was to be in God's place where he put us, serving him, working. Rest is not opposed to work. And Jesus is offering us rest. He alludes to Jeremiah 6.16. Jeremiah said, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But the people would not walk in it. (laughs) Jesus is offering you to recover the ancient paths, the ancient ways of rest that are found only in God. Where do we find those? We find them as we gather with his body as you are this morning, as we hear his word and promise, as we take hold of the sacraments together. We, we, we find his rest as we remind one another of his promises all the day long and as we serve one another where we are, as I pick up the towel off the bathroom floor and hang it up in love and don't complain about it, you know? And even more, as I go to my neighbor, welcome them into my home, as I interact with a person who's very unpleasant and show them dignity and love and respect even when they don't show it to me, even share Christ with them. Rest doesn't mean an absence of effort, certainly not of moral effort. Remember, this is Jesus who came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And those who lessen one iota, one dot, are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. He's not lessening the requirements of the law, but he's paying them all for us. So that we can fail and get up and try again and fail and get up and try again, and fail and get up and try again. And it's just like 7.30 a.m., and then we're going to fail and try and get up, you know? And rest, because it's okay. (laughs) Come to me. I'll pay it all. I'm gentle and lowly heart. You'll find rest for your souls here. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. We may have certain expectations of Jesus. We may want him to be a certain thing. And we may experience a letdown. He wasn't exactly what I thought he would be. He didn't do exactly what I thought he would do. But he says, come and learn of me. This is the invitation today, Faith and friends. Learn of Jesus. As a husband has to learn his wife day in and day out for decades. As friends continue to learn one another. Learn of Jesus. Continue to look to who he actually is. See the promise he actually offers. See the price he paid for you to have rest. See his invitation. He is who he is, and it's actually good news. He's the true Messiah, the true king who has come. He is God with us. He's a just judge. He's the one who would reveal the Father even to us And he would even give us true rest. Jesus exposes our misplaced expectations. He gives us something better. So I hope you take hold of them today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray for folks today who 
Lord, have not yet made that step to commit to trust in you. Lord, I pray that they would come. We hear your invitation, Lord. And we come. We come to you. We need you. We can call out to you from our our workplace chair. We can call out to you from our couch or our bed at night. You were there with, even with John in prison. There's no place we can't call out to you that you would not come to us. Make us your own. So I pray you would help us to respond to your call, to come to you. We pr- I pray that you'd give us true rest, Lord. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.